So, good morning, Liminalites. That's my new name for us. I guess Liminalists would be okay, too. But I kind of like the ites. Um, And good morning to those of you who are online as well. I'm glad you're joining us. And happy Super Bowl Sunday to all. I hope your team wins. Uh, Mine will, because I don't care. (laughs) Um, Go Dodgers. Go Dodgers. But you can think of this as the pregame show. Um, I know it's been a tradition for your teaching team to give some disclaimers, and I had actually two disclaimers, but I'm going to pass right by those. Um, and the one that I'm going to land on is this, this week, normally when I'm preaching, I do all my research a couple weeks ahead, and then on Wednesday is my writing day. And um, this week, something happened at work. Um, We've got a case that's going to be going to the Supreme Court, and all of a sudden it hit that this was the week of writing. And so if in the middle of my sermon I start launching into channeling injunctions or, you know, good faith narratives, um, just wait. I'll get back onto it sooner or later. (laughs) Now, I usually write my sermon in one shot, and this one was um, interspersed with my boss calling and doing dictation over the phone, so... Who knows what you're going to get this morning? But a second disclaimer is I'm not particularly good at this subject that I'm going to be speaking on this morning. Um, And I decided that's kind of okay. It was funny. I talked to Catherine, and she said, I'm just dying to hear what you're going to say, because she knows (laughs) how bad I am at this, or how bad I was, because I've made some corrections. But maybe it's better that I come to you as a fellow sojourner, rather than as someone who has it all together and is just giving my pearls of wisdom to you. Um, Well, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? O Creator, hear my prayer. I greet this dawn with gratitude for the gift of a new day. May my heart be filled with love and my mind open to wisdom. Let my footsteps be guided by the path of truth and my spirit soar like the eagle. Creator, be with me today and help me to walk in beauty and balance in harmony with all of you, all of my humanity. That prayer comes to us from the Blackfoot Nation, which will be relevant soon. Well, I'm a Christian, or sometimes a reluctant and often detouring follower of Christ. And to be more accurate, since I was about 18... I was saved in the Jesus movement of the 1970s, and I was plunked right into the middle of the Christian evangelical bubble. I feel like I should be saying my name is Ginny Downing, and I... (laughs) Hi, Ginny. Hi. Um, I assumed that everyone within the bubble was going to heaven, and everyone without of the bubble was going to hell, and would burn for all of eternity. I would not have said all of that in the midst But that's what I believed. And I have to say, I honestly learned a lot of good things while in the bubble, and I'm not sorry for those years. Um, But there was the moment when I realized that God was bigger than the bubble, and the only way to really explore more of what he's like was to pop it. And that was terrifying. Because if my boundaries weren't accurate, then how did I know where that was going to lead? The last thing, though, that I thought at that particular time was, first of all, that I would become a pastor, 
which I still find in equal amounts to be amazingly wonderful and patently absurd, and B, that I would ever consider listening to preaching or teaching on what we could learn from the Celtic or the Native American religious practices, let alone deliver it myself. I mean, really, what comes to mind when you think of Celtic practices? Druids? burning straw figures, chanting and singing before standing stones at midnight around bonfires, crying out to heavenly beings? Or consider Native Americans. I grew up with a very faulty um, image of what the Native American culture was like. Hollywood's unrealistic and damaging portrayal of Native Americans. The uncivilized savages kidnapping poor innocent women and the brave Nordic-looking cowboy risking life and limb to rescue her, wherein he's either shot by arrows or burnt at the stake, but somehow he manages to escape, and he slings her onto his trusty, let's see, cayuse, was that the word we learned? <laughs> or horse, for those of us. Um, and they ride into the sunset and live happily ever after. Is this really a people that we can learn about godliness from? It's really amazing what cultural nonsense we buy into, isn't it? Well, today I invite you to clear your mind of all the stereotypes we were brought up with. And if, you're, if you were young enough to skip all this nonsense, I really <laughs> envy you. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we're going to have a lot to crawl over. And this morning is an opportunity to do that. And maybe once we've crawled over it, we'll never visit it again to look at things we're less familiar with and see what we can learn from them. Today I'm going to talk a bit about those two cultures. At least in the beginning, we're so far away from my evangelical roots and what they would have considered as a model for Christianity. Maybe yours too. In the early 2000s, I think I've mentioned, I signed up for a two-year program to become a spiritual director. And the first year emphasized spiritual formation and... Um, as such, we took a deep dive into the lives of various saints. One of my favorite saints was St. Patrick. Now, St. Patrick was sort of a renegade priest. He was commissioned by Rome to go to Ireland and Christianize the wayward primitive Celts and other indigenous people there. So off Patrick went, with much enthusiasm, to do just that. But something happened when he got there. He fell in love with Ireland. And more, he fell in love with the Irish people. And part of that love entailed getting to know them. And it, he discovered something interesting. They had a love of nature and creation that inspired him. In fact, he found that he was quite easily able to encounter God in the midst of creation, in the midst of the forests, in the rivers. So rather than tell them they had to turn away from everything they believed in, Patrick did a very wise thing. He instead showed them how God was actually already present within their paradigm. The Celts loved nature for a very important reason. They realized they were completely 100% dependent upon it. The land gave them food. The trees gave them shelter. Animals provided food for them, and other animals assisted them in ways of travel, carrying heavy things, pulling plows, and even providing poop for fertilizer. The atmosphere gave them rain and sunshine, neither of which they could live without. In short, without nature, there was no life. 
Now, do you remember how Wayne and Andrew talked about Genesis 1, where humankind was given the responsibility of ruling over nature? And immediately, humankind embraced the domination sense of ruling? Well, the Celts didn't. Take, for instance, the trees that they chopped down to build shelters or fires. They would take time to thank the tree for its service, for its beauty, and to honor its sacrifice. The same with the animals that they hunted for food. A Celtic prayer after a successful hunt was to recognize their responsibility to use wisely what was theirs at such a cost. And they endeavored to use every bit of the animal for a good purpose. The skins to keep warm, the bones to make tools or for sewing needles, the meat, of course, and the portions of the animal they could not or would not eat, they would use to give back nutrients to the soil or to feed to less finicky animals. The Celts had celebrations for every season to acknowledge the gifts of the season and to ask each season for protection against its more harsher qualities. So Patrick's task was not all that difficult. Pointing a culture who was already steeped in the notion of gratitude toward God, who placed all things into being, worshiping the creator rather than what God had created. And do you remember our, um, some of you were here for our series on the Trinity and how we explored that? Um, we have such a hard time conceiving of three in one. It's not in our, our normal way of thinking. But for the Celts, it was. For them, already everything is one. So it was not a difficult leap for the Celts, and many, many, uh, many of them followed Patrick's ways quite naturally. As he explained the Trinity to the Celts, he was explaining the three-in-one to a culture that already understood the reality that everything is one. And Patrick, in turn, learned from them. And he embraced, instead of the binary thinking that the Roman churches had adopted, he saw the unity and the oneness of all things. And he believed that that more accurately reflected God. So even now you'll hear about the Irish Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church, and that's where that split happened. Um, Rome was not best pleased, as you can imagine, and they called Patrick back on a number of occasions to send him straight, and Patrick smiled and nodded and then went back and did his thing the way he was doing it before. So anyway, um, the Celts had a number of creation stories, and I'm going to call them creation stories instead of myths, because myth has a connotation that it is not true. And we can just as easily say that Genesis 1 is a myth. And, of course, if we say that in the evangelical bubble, we will be tossed out to burn to all eternity. But, um, so I will use the word story instead of myth. And in terms of the story, they had several um, but I'm going to land on one that I particularly like. According to this one, creation took place by the primordial first God, who, by means of a melody played by his breath, brought creation into existence. Don't you love that idea? That when merged with ours, the Ruach, or the breath of God, called all things into being, that it was in nature a song. Now, maybe it's just the musician in me, but I love the image. And C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien seem to love it too because that very thought, that very image made its way into the Chronicles of Narnia and into the Silmarillion by Tolkien. 
The Celts saw nature as sacred. They saw the majesty of the sunrise and the sunset, of thunder and lightning, and as things beyond their understanding. And therefore, they worshipped them as being greater than they. They lived a life in a posture of wonder, a posture of acknowledging and accepting their frailty and vulnerability. They honored their environment, understanding their utter dependency upon it and with one another. These are things that I think we should perhaps take note of and learn. Despite our theological and scientific advantages, are we really any different? We think we're, we're independent, but are we really? We think we don't need each other, but is that true? We think we don't need the gifts that nature has, but I think we do. What I think is sad is that we've lost that sense of wonder, of amazement in the deep and profoundly beautiful simplicity of a melody, a tiny flower, or a ladybug. I think if I were to, if I were to give you homework, it would be to grab a three-year-old with its parents' permission and take it for a walk and let the three-year-old lead you. We did this <laughs> once with my granddaughter. I'm off script. That's okay. You're going to miss the Super Bowl anyway. Um, she was maybe two or three. And, you know, I said, let's go for a walk. So for me, the destination is the thing, right? And so I have in mind, we have 15 minutes to walk. We're going to get from here around the block back here, and we're good for lunch. And walking with Hannah is not a destination. It is a presence in the moment. And so we'd get about three steps, and she'd stop, stop to look at a leaf. I'd go, great, you know, there's a leaf. And then she'd stop and look at the next one. You know, it's substantially similar to the first one, really. I think we can move on. But at one point, it had been raining, and there was this worm that was, you know, well, dead on the, on the sidewalk. <laughs> And she gets down, crouches down, puts her hands on her knees and looks down at it for what seemed like an eternity. And then she looked up at me and she goes, poor little fellow. Yeah. Grab a three-year-old and go for a walk and let them lead you and forget about your destination and experience life through their eyes. And I think your life will change. It will. Hannah's, what, 20? 20. 20 now, and I still think, poor little fellow, every time I see a worm. <laughs> it is so sad that we've lost a sense of wonder. And when Jesus said, you know, experience life as a child, he wasn't kidding. They know so much more than we do. I think we've gotten a bit arrogant with our own accomplishments, our faulty sense of independence and self-sufficiency. And sometimes I think if we listen hard enough, we will hear the echoes of God's word to Job when Job, like we, needed a course correction. And God said, Where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels sounded for joy? Hmm. First of all, I love that God's sarcastic. 
<laughs> That's just amazing. <laughs> but the picture of him measuring out the earth or the foundations of the universe when the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Isn't that beautiful? That isn't in science books. You know, okay. We need the sense of wonder. Now, I don't want to speak for God, but sometimes I wonder if he misses that more winsome, simpler, wonderstruck nature of humankind that got left behind in the garden when we would get down on our hands and knees and look at a little worm and say, poor little fellow. Okay, even if that might be true, here are some gifts of the Celts that I think would be really good for us to embrace and to weave into our own theology. Cultivate a, a posture of wonder. Cultivate the gift of acknowledging and accepting your frailty and vulnerability. I mean, who embraces that, right? I think we should. Because you know why? It's true. We're incredibly vulnerable. Cultivate an appreciation and love for the natural environment and see what it teaches you. Cultivate and embrace an understanding of your utter dependency upon God, nature, and one another. Those are just some things I think we can learn from those druids. Okay, let's jump over a continent and look at our country's original inhabitants. And I'm going to be calling them Native Americans. And I know some prefer Indigenous Americans or First Nation. But honestly, in my research, they seem to be kind of used interchangeably, uh, depending on context. So I'm going to use a Native American. And if I am correct, incorrect, please forgive me. Um, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I could be wrong. Probably am. So, what do the Native Americans believe, and what were they like before Columbus and others crossed the ocean blue and mucked everything up, if you'll pardon the editorial comment? Well, first of all, they viewed humankind and nature not as different or distinct entities, but rather that humanity is an integral part of nature. Consequently, they too believed that there must be a two-way reciprocal relationship where humanity looks after nature is respectful towards it and cares for it. And in return, nature will look after humankind. Their belief in symbiosis and reciprocity with nature continues to this present day, even on the, uh, on the reservations that they are now on. This beautiful culture saw and continues to see themselves as inseparably in intertwined with the land and with nature. So you can understand their horror when the colonists blundered onto the land. And consider the, wor the words of Chief Luther Standing Bear from Land of the Spotted Eagle in 1933. As yet, I know no species that was exterminated until the coming of the white man who considered animal life just as he did the natural man life upon this continent as pests. We Lakota have no word for this. Forests were mown down, buffalo exterminated, the beaver driven to extinction, and its wonderfully constructed dams dynamited. The very birds of the air were silent. The white man has come to be the symbol of extinction for all things natural in this continent. 
Between him and the animal, there is no rapport, and they have learned to free from, flee from his approach, for they cannot live on the same ground. Ouch. Or consider these words. When the last tree is cut, the last fish is caught, and the last river is polluted, when to breathe air is sickening, you will realize too late that wealth is not in bank accounts and that you can't eat money. That's from Alamas, Alanis Obumswan from the Abenaki Nation. And please excuse my pronunciation. Native American people view themselves as one with nature. They're part of something bigger. They hold the fundamental belief that humankind is not superior to wildlife or the natural world, which created a deeper respect for nature and a greater focus on sustainable practices. In fact, they didn't have a word for environment because they viewed trees, plants, and animals, all the natural world, as people equal to themselves. So there are tree people, there are plant people, strawberry sisters, and brother bear. When they took from nature, they did so in a manner that would increase and strengthen it. Imagine, back before white man graced this land with his presence, they were already practicing the things that we're struggling to catch up with. They cultivated salmon in streams that were overpopulated so the remaining fish could go strong. They dug clam beds so that clams were more abundant and had room to grow. They cut down trees that were done thoughtfully and reverently, sacrificing one that was causing overgrowth for the good of the rest. And as we will see in a moment, tobacco, something precious to Native Americans, something they used in their deepest and most meaningful spiritual ceremonies, was left in the ground when they took something out, something that meant something deep and dear to them was recognizing the sacredness and the sacrifice that they were asking of the nature of nature and they left something as a peace offering the concept of ownership did not exist the land belonged to everyone although there might be disagreements and fights between the tribes for prized hunting grounds however when the settlers arrived and without thought conquered the land the native americans were one in terms of outrage these settlers who thoughtlessly and arrogantly raped and pillaged the land which was sacred and which, when treated reverently, reverently, would love and sustain all of them. And their response was not one of bloodlust, as our history books would tell us, although that was the result in some cases. It was not bloodlust against the settlers, but rather a protective action to defend the land that had been violated. And they had been set up by their God is the protectors. It puts a little different spin on it, doesn't it? Well, we've all heard the story of the Native Americans who inhabited what would become Jamestown, trying to teach the starving pilgrims how to plant corn by placing fish in the ground underneath the seed in order to fertilize the dirt to grow stronger corn. I think we've all heard that story. Um, but I don't... I don't think our history books mention the full story of it. The whole fish wasn't buried, just the parts that weren't fit for eating. There's a beautiful cycle here. A fish is caught from an overstocked river. 
allowing more food for the other fish to grow stronger. The codfish is cleaned and eaten by the Native Americans, but then they use the rest. The bones were used for tools and fish hooks, much like the Celts. The inner parts were kept and used to fertilize the corn kernel that would produce more corn to eat, stocks to feed the animals, etc. Nothing was wasted. All was honored, all seen as necessary for life, and the Native Americans held the deep belief that their part was to lovingly tend and steward the land um, that they were privileged to be a part of. Now, as with the Celts, Native Americans have a variety of creation stories, but I picked the one I liked because I have the microphone. When you listen to it, listen to the similarities, but also listen, listen to the differences to our own creation story. Long ago, before Mother Earth existed, the Creator sat alone in the darkness, thinking, and with his thoughts, he formed Mother Earth. He covered the Earth with plants and trees, birds and animals, and many crawling insects. But he became lonely. So from the soil of the Earth, he formed two companions, a man and a woman. Beside the man, he placed a bow and arrow. This was to show that man was to be the protector and the provider of food. Beside the woman, he placed a birch bark basket filled with seeds. Excuse me. The basket and seeds represented the natural resources given to the Ojibwe people. The creator who also placed a book next to the woman. Then the creator blew life. Ruach. <laughs> blew life into the woman and the man. First, he blew life into the woman. And then, <laughs> when she arose, she picked up the birch bark basket full of seeds, but she did not pick up the book. Her choice does not mean that the Ojibwe people are not educated. They just have a different way of learning. When the Creator blew life into the man, he picked up both the bow and arrow and accepted his responsibility to protect and provide food. Then the Creator said, Take care of Mother Earth, and she will take care of you. Don't get greedy. Take only what you need, and remember to put down tobacco before you take from Mother Earth. This is how the Ojibwe people came to be. Isn't that beautiful? And so similar to ours, and yet with a few differences. Well, if you'll remember Wayne's and Andrew's message from the last couple weeks, you remember them pointing out our creation narrative from Genesis. And you'll remember how God created and how it was all very, very good. Let's read just a bit of Genesis, just as a refresher. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Note the repetition there. When the Bible repeats something back to back like that, it means, hey, look at this. It's kind of important. So, we were created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, when we look at our charge from God, there are two troublesome verbs, and Andrew talked about them a bit last week.
but I'm going to talk about them a bit more because I thought it was cool. We have a choice in our interpretation here. The word subdue, it's a verb. The first um, definition that I'd like to say is to subdue can be looked at as to quieten or to bring under control. Picture a mother holding a, a child who's in the midst of a tantrum. She lovingly soothes it, speaks calmly, reassures the child, and eventually the child comes under control. That is one way to subdue. The other way is to rule, conquer, put down, defeat, and overpower. Choose now. The word rule also has two meanings. It has more than two meanings, but there's only two that I'm going to talk about. The first is if you picture a judge who rules on a motion. He proclaims justice and he declares what's correct, what's right, and what's righteous. Or to rule is to exercise ultimate power and authority over, to dominate and subdue one's enemies. Choose now which you will do. Imago Dei, made in the image of God. If we are image bearers of Christ and are asked to subdue and rule over nature, if we are true to our image and do it the way Christ would do it, could it not be said that it would be to quiet, to bring calmness, to bring it under control for its own benefit as opposed to ours? To bring about what is just and righteous in terms of our relationship with nature? Could we not say that? Could we not do that? Is that not how Christ subdues and rules over us? Consider this from the Bible. Time after time, story after story, Jesus is moved to compassion by the crowds. He noticed people, even and especially the ones that were overlooked. He even took time to eat with them. He invited people to be with him. He healed scores of people. He comforted, he calmed fears. He offered peace, shalom, wholeness. What of these things can we bring into our relationship with nature? Can we notice the things around us in nature, recognize the brokenness, be moved to compassion, notice the flower beds that are choked out with weeds and clear some room for them to breathe? Maybe even change our idea of what a, a weed is? When we were in Scotland, there were beautiful flowers yellow flowers all over the place. And I looked at them closely. They were dandelions. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, you guys wouldn't have had a chance in America. But they were just beautiful. I, I still pull mine out here, but they were lovely there. <laughs> Could we not be moved to compassion and take steps to bring healing? The other day I walked by um, one of my indoor plants. You know, it's been raining, right? So I wasn't really thinking of watering. And I thought, man, that looks droopy. I should water it. And I went on to start to do other things. And then I remembered my sermon. <laughs> and I thought, okay, maybe I should go back and water it. And, you know, I found myself actually apologizing to it. I'm sorry, I should have noticed you earlier. And I thought at first, if anyone heard me, they'd think I'd lost my mind. But on the other hand, maybe I've found it. Do you know what I mean? Can we notice things around us in nature, recognizing its brokenness, being moved to compassion, taking steps to bring healing, 
and offer peace and shalom to our broken planet. You know, in fact, the, Celt the Celts and the Native Americans hold quite a lot in common, although they expressed it differently. What would it be, unlike, what would it be like to embrace these things? And as I read through a list of them, I'd like you to consider, are these things in harmony with our faith? Are they things we can embrace and incorporate into our faith to make it a fuller expression of what God has in mind for us? Are these things that might bring shalom to our surroundings? I'll let you be the judge. First, always meant to coexist in harmony. There is beauty and value in all things. Humanity is completely dependent on nature. There is no life with, without what nature offers, and we are dependent upon it for our very survival as it is dependent upon us for survival as well. Humankind is not superior to nature, but rather is intrinsically intertwined with it. As part of this connection, humankind has the responsibility to protect and guard nature, and when it is necessary to take from nature, there is the equal responsibility to give back in some way and to use what was taken responsibly and reverently. Okay, let's put a pin in that for a moment, and I will tell you something about me. As I mentioned, I'm not good at this. I love walks in nature, and I could stare at the ocean for hours. And I love to look at rocks, especially the ones that are underwater because their beauty shines through. But I'm not good at living responsibly in a way that will bring healing and wholeness. And I confess to you that I'm horrible about bringing reusable non-plastic bags to the grocery store. Although I'm hoping to change that. I now have some bags in my trunk, and with God's help, I will remember to take them out of the trunk at the proper time. And a host of other thoughtless things that I do. I don't consider all the works in the hands of the natural resources and the toil and sacrifice to put what's on my dinner plate that I gobble down in a rush to get on to the next thing. In fact, I'm horrible at living responsibly. So I'm glad I'm preaching today because it makes me stop and think how I live. It's been a bad week, guys. <laughs> and because of this, there's one thing I'm kind of fanatical about is I'm not going to stand up here and preach to you and then go home and not do it. So um, hold me accountable uh, because I'm going to need the reminder. But I really have made quite a few changes this week despite what work had to give to me. But I will tell you a funny story. It's sort of the whimsical side of Ginny, um, and no doubt it will make you lose all respect for me whatsoever. <laughs> but that's okay. On Thursday, I ordered lunch at work, and as part of it, I ordered a bag of barbecued potato chips, Exhibit A. It's a law office. We do that. I just started on my sermon thinking about it, so it was kind of fresh in my mind, and I needed to s slow down and be more mindful about what I consume. So... As I opened the bag of chips, I happened to notice on the bag an invitation on the back that says, follow us online, www.dirties.com. And I thought, okay, I have to look that up. <laughs> so I did. And uh, I left my bosses to fend for themselves for a little while, and when I got back to my desk, I plunked the website into my browser, and it turns out that Bill and Sally Utz in the 1920s were struggling financially 
thinking how to save the family farm. They lived in Hanover, Pennsylvania. Well, it turns out they had a potato patch. And so Sally was a bit of a cook, and she began to make potato chips and sell them locally. And they caught on. So they made a $300 investment in equipment, and this family has grown since the 1920s to a, uh, from a farmhouse kitchen to a $235 million year, a year enterprise, still owned by the same family, but now employing 1,800 people. They pride themselves on using naturally sourced potatoes and, for the most part, healthy ingredients, if barbecued potato chips can in any universe be considered healthy. And you know what? Doing that five-minute dive into the Internet in search of my potato chips roots, um, if you will excuse the pun, was a good exercise for me, and it made me think about the 1,800 people who worked together to provide potato chips for my lunch. 1,800 people who had jobs thanks to Bill and Sally and their vision and commitment to growing a sustainable business. All that from a lowly potato chip. Notice. Notice. That's the first step. Really, it's the first step in anything. Somehow, we have got to, try to train ourselves to stop living on autopilot with our eyes on the next thing rather than what's before our eyes. Because what's right before our eyes is likely waiting or wanting our attention. Have you thought of that? Have you thought of... Okay, now this seems stupid, but have you thought of a potato chip bag wanting your attention? I think it did. I mean, I'm not trying to anthropomorphize the potato chips, but... You know, a tree, a flower, a bird, the ocean waves, they all want to interact with us in their own way, to share themselves with us, to offer us their gifts, and to receive from us that which we have been placed on earth to offer. Reconciliation, renewal, redemption, love. Here's some familiar words. Consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the mustard seed. Do those phrases sound familiar at all to you? I think they should. They all have a story to tell. And Jesus pointed them out when he was here. Look at that. Look at what ha that has to tell you. A little flower can tell you a lot more than a sermon. Now, I'm not trying to make you or me feel bad about what you have, what you eat, what you use. I realize most of you are probably much farther along this road than I am. And I was challenged this week to live more responsibly. And while I can't fix everything, or probably anything, at least I can try to stop doing actual harm. Or at least less of it. And make the little slice of the universe that I am privileged enough to inhabit a better place. My mother was brilliant at this. She had a green thumb. And it seemed like um, every house we lived in, she would see a blank slate as something that could turn into a beautiful garden. And her gardens were amazing. How can we live responsibly? Well, I'm not good at it. As I said, I'm getting better. And as a result of preparing this sermon, I've made quite a few changes already. Small ones, but I think they'll help. 
and they will add up, and they'll inspire me and maybe you to do more. And I think that's the key. Think about what you're doing now. Are you considering eliminating or reducing your use of plastic? Maybe you drive an electric car, or you drive a gas-powered car, but maybe you are limiting its use to only necessities. Do you recycle, compost, reuse rather than throw things away? Turn down the thermostat in the winter, turn it up to a higher temperature in the summer? Do you plant a garden? Do you plant vegetables? When you consume, when you eat, do you pause to consider what it took to get that slice of bread or salad on your plate? Do you consider what you wash down your drains? What effect is your favorite brand of soap having once it makes its way through the sewer lines? What are you wearing? Do you stop to consider where it came from? A laboratory or a cotton field? Do you consider whose hands were involved in the harvesting, the weaving, sewing, packaging, shipping, inventory, displaying, selling, and finally bagging so you can take it home to wear it? Do you ever pause to pray for inspector number 16? Do you know if those who work endless hours at a sewing machine to install zippers and sew seams are making a reasonable wage? Notice. Be curious. All the people who are involved in the things that we take for granted, all the natural resources that are used responsibly and otherwise, notice, be curious, be grateful, and speak up for them. The challenge today is to consider what ruling and subduing could look like if we did it the way Jesus does. And I hope you will take some time to notice, to consider what you are doing today, and to consider doing a little bit more tomorrow, and a little bit more after that. Well, I'd like to invite the band back up, and as we move into communion, I want to take a moment to consider the cracker and the juice. This cracker began as a seed. It's gluten-free, so I'm not sure what it's made out of, but for the sake of the illustration, can we pretend it's wheat? It began as a seed, and it took many hands and many hours to shape it into its current form. The juice also began as a tiny plant that grew into one that could produce grapes, and many hands turned those grapes into juice that is now going to be in your cup. And as you are pausing to notice in gratitude, let's also pause to recall that Jesus came to earth as a baby, laid down his divinity to show us a better way to live, a way that would bring shalom, healing, and life that is abundant and flourishing. He lived giving his message that the kingdom of God is not far, but it's all around us. And he died and his last thoughts, he puts it into words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now, yes, this was meant for the people that crucified him. But you know what? It also means us. We don't know what we're doing. We don't see the consequences of what we do. And may we pause and think about that. Well, before you come up for communion, I want to pray a prayer on behalf of all of us and this prayer comes from the Lakota tribe. Once the prayer is finished, we'll go and we'll begin singing. And you, 
and you can come up to the front to get a cracker and the juice. And before you eat and drink, pause a moment, give thanks for those who toiled that we might have that cracker and juice as a reminder of Jesus, who makes all things beautiful. Let's pray. O great spirit, whose voice I hear on the wind, whose breath gives life to all the world, hear me. I need your strength and wisdom. Let me walk in beauty and make my eyes ever behold the red and purple sunset. Make my hands respect the things you have made and my ears sharp to hear your voice. Make me wise so I may understand the things you have taught my people. Help me to remain calm and strong in the face of all that comes toward me. Let me learn the lessons you have hidden in every leaf, in every rock. Help me seek pure thoughts and act with the intention of helping others. Help me find compassion without empathy overwhelming me. I seek strength not to be greater than my brother, but to fight my greatest enemy, myself. Make me always ready to come to you with clean hands and straight eyes, so when life fades as the fading sunset, my spirit may come home to you without shame. Amen.